Hey, church family. So good to be with you again on this Sunday. Hope you're all doing well, staying healthy, staying safe, and uh, so glad that you've joined us together to worship together uh, today. I'm reminded of a story of a young doctor who was setting up his first office, and his secretary told him, hey, there's, there's somebody here to see you. And, and so the young doctor wanting to appear successful and, and busy, she, he told the, his secretary to send the man in. But right before he came in, the man came in, the doctor picked up the phone and pretended to be having a conversation with a patient on the other line. And so the man stood there waiting patiently for the conversation to end. And when the doctor was finished with his conversation, he hung up the phone, his pretend conversation, he hung up the phone and he asked the man, he said, can I help you? And the man said, no, I'm just here to hook up your telephone. You know, from the earliest of ages, we work hard to try and impress and to create an impression. It starts very early in the backyard, on the playground. Mommy, look at me. Daddy, watch me. And it continues on to the classrooms and the athletic fields in high school and it continues on and makes its way into the parties and boardrooms and offices and golf courses and even churches even today. The desire to be impressed and to impress exists at every age and every stage and every realm of life and yet so often that desire to leave an impression can often get you into all kinds of trouble. We are in the midst of a series called Going Viral in which we're journeying through the book of Acts and we're examining what it looks like. What does it look like when the message of Jesus Christ goes viral? What are, what are some of the aspects of it? What, what are some of the things that surround it and, and some of the accelerators to it? And, and today in our journey, we come to one of the more troubling stories in Acts. It's a story about a couple trying to make an impression. And yet the impression that they made was not the one that they ever intended. And yet it still had something to do with the message of Jesus going viral. So picking up in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, Luke writes, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And then continuing in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing this? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. 
Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. In many ways, this is such a powerful story. And I use that word powerful in particular because not only does it describe this story, but, but it's also a description of what's going on through the church and in the life of the church. Not only were things going viral, which is the whole point of this whole, whole message series, but the, the witness and the life and the things going on in the life of the church were nothing short of explosive, like dynamite. In fact, that word dynamite comes from an old Greek word that, we're, that Luke uses here in Acts called dunamis, which means power. We first see that word in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, but you will receive power, dunamis, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there's a whole lot of dynamite that goes off in what we just read. There's the dynamite of, of testimony. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them. There's the dynamite of sacrifice and sharing and community. There are no needy persons among these people. That's a powerful statement. And from time to time, people are bringing pieces of land and, and, and their homes and they're, they're selling it and they're bringing 100% of the money and they're, they're giving it to the apostles. They're laying it at their feet for the apostles to distribute it to anyone who had need, and that's exactly what the apostles were doing. This is the scene that we find Barnabas, that, that he does. He brings, uh, here, he sells a piece of property that he owns, and he brings the money, profits from the money, uh, profit, profits from the deal, and he lays it at the apostles' feet for them to distribute to others in need. And this is what sets the story for what we just read about with Ananias and Sapphira, and there is definitely some dynamite in the story that we just read about them. There's the dynamite of the discipline of the Lord. And we'll come back to them in just a moment, because there's also dynamite in the story that immediately follows their story, the dynamite of healing. There's so much healing power that people are, are bringing the, the sick and the demonized, not just from Jerusalem and all over Jerusalem, but from the, the surrounding towns and suburbs around Jerusalem, and they're all getting healed. And it's not just those within the church who are experiencing this healing. It's the community around the church, even the sick that, that lay in the streets that Peter's shadow happens to fall on as he passes by. Even they are being healed. This is a church of incredible consequence. We're belonging to it, had powerful consequences. See uh, Ananias and Sapphira. But also we're just being around it, had incredibly powerful 
consequences for your life as well. This was a church where the explosiveness of the Lord's presence and the Lord's power were nothing short of obvious. And the results were viral. The message of Jesus continues to spread. People couldn't help but at least notice this group of followers who were meeting in the temple courts and all over Jerusalem. These people, there were consequences that came with them. Powerful consequences. In fact, it's interesting as Luke writes the story, he almost describes it in contradictory ways. I mean, just listen to what he says in just the span of two sentences in, in Acts chapter uh, 5, verses 13 and, and 14. He says, no one else dared, this is verse 13, no one else dared join them, no kidding, after they saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And then here's the very next verse. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And it's like, well, which one is it? No one dared, jo- no one dared join them, and yet, more and more people are believing in the Lord and being added to their number. You see, they just couldn't help it. This was, there was just something powerful about these people. Which leads me to the first observation when, from this passage when it comes to the message of Jesus going viral. And it's this. Going viral happens when the church is held in high regard. Going viral happens when the church is held in high regard by the community and the world around it. After Ananias and Sapphira, I can understand why no one else dared join them. And yet, the church was so highly regarded that even though you had what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, there are still more and more people coming to a belief in the Lord and are being added to their number. That's high regard. So what was it about these believers in Jerusalem. Why were they being held in such high regard? Well, that leads me to the second takeaway. Going viral happens when the church is set apart by God's presence, not its perfection. Going viral happens when the church is set apart by God's presence, not its perfection. That's in so many ways what's going on here. The church is far from perfect. Ananias and Sapphira are exhibit A to that, And as you read deeper into Acts, you, you find more and more problems that, that crop up within the church. In fact, we're going to read about one of those, a big one, next week in our series. But, but it's the presence of the Lord in a tangible way among those believers that results in the, in the church being held in such high esteem and the message of Jesus continuing to go viral. And when you look at the, the, the flow of Scripture, throughout Scripture, this, this is always the case. You know, from Genesis to Revelation, throughout Scripture, it's the manifest presence of the Lord, the presence of of the Lord in a tangible, concrete way among His people that distinguishes His people, that sets His people apart from every other people on the face of the earth. All the way back in in Exodus chapter 33, let's go back to the very beginning, all the way back in Exodus chapter 33, God, just after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and Moses and the people, they're getting ready to, to leave Mount Sinai, the foot of Mount Sinai, and head to, to make their way to the promised land. And Moses says this to God. He says, if your presence, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And listen to this. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And so God agrees And they continue on through their travels uh, through the wilderness. And and do you remember how he travels with them? With a cloud by day 
and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of the Lord was made known in a tangible way. It, it distinguished them. It set them apart from every other people on the face of the earth. Part of God's promise to, to, to be with them was that they needed to build him a, a tabernacle for, for his presence, kind of like a, a portable temple that they would take with them uh, as they traveled. And, and when they would stop moving in the, temp, uh, in the wilderness, they would, they would take the tabernacle with them. And when they would stop moving, they would stop and camp for the night. They would, they, they would set up the tabernacle again. And do you remember what, what, what happened at night when, when, the, when, when they would camp? The, the, this pillar of fire and this cloud by day, it would descend and it would fill the tabernacle. It would fill the tabernacle on the ground floor, distinguishing it, setting it apart. A little later, when Solomon builds the actual temple in Jerusalem, what was the first thing that happened? The, a, a cloud comes down, or excuse me, fire comes down and, and engulfs the, uh, the sacrifice that they had put on the altar. And then the cloud of the Lord's presence comes down. Visible manifestation of the Lord's presence come down, comes down and fills the temple, setting it apart, distinguishing it. When Jesus was baptized, when you read in all four of the Gospels, his, his baptism, what does John see descending on Jesus after he's baptized? A dove. God's manifest presence. John says, you, you, he, when he sees this, he says, you are the Messiah. You're the one that I've testified about. What's going on? God's manifest presence is setting Jesus apart as God's own, as his Messiah. Even in Acts chapter two, when the spirit of God comes on the church on the day of Pentecost, which we looked at just a few weeks ago, do you remember what the spirit, or how the spirit was poured out? There's the sound of wind and tongues of fire that come on top of each of their heads. What's happening? God is distinguishing his people, setting apart his people, the manifest presence of the Lord. Because again, it's the presence of God, it's the presence of the Lord that sets his people apart above everything else. So what's my point? My point is that what sets God's people apart above everything else is not their perfection. It's not our perfection. And thank God for that because we don't have any. What sets God's people apart is his presence among them. And the theme from Genesis through Revelation is just that. It's the presence of the Lord among a people that set them apart, that distinguishes them, that, that, that causes them to stand out. And somebody might say, well, I thought we always sing and they'll know we are Christians by our love, right? It doesn't Jesus himself say that, that you will know that you, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And absolutely, Jesus does say that. And I take no exception with that. But love is a fruit of what? Or who? Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, love. It's the presence of, of God and of his Spirit that sets his people apart. Not their perfection. And not anything else for that matter. So what is it in particular about the Lord's presence that caused them to be held in such high regard? Well, let me just give you three things that I think come right out of this text. I'm just going to give them to you really quickly. First, the grace of the Lord was upon them. Much grace, Luke says, was upon them all. Grace for testifying to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grace for sharing and, and sacrificing their resources with one another. The grace of the Lord was upon them. Second, the healing of the Lord was flowing through them. 
This outpouring of healing was just stunning. There's no other word for it. The, The sick and the demonized in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns, all of them are being healed. I mean, can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine all of these sick and these these demonically uh, oppressed being brought to this one location? You talk about crazy, messy, unscripted, powerful. This is a church that's making a difference in the lives of the people around them. And, And these people weren't yet a part of it, but they lived around it. And the result was that they were affected by it. And the results were unmistakably viral. Here's a third aspect of the Lord's presence. And that was the holiness of the Lord that was among them. There's no question that there was a supernatural presence among this church. And Ananias and Sapphira are evidence to that. As Peter puts it, they lied not to the church, but to the spirit of God himself that was present among them. The church, In one sense, Ananias and Sapphira themselves turned out to be witnesses to the measure of the power and the working of God among those believers. By the way, it's also worth noting, this is the first time in Acts that the discipline of the Lord is, is manifested in a tangible way. And, and, and notice that it's on display in the church, not in the world. You know, sometimes it's easy as, as believers for us to kind of look at the world around us and not necessarily in particular people, but just look at the world around us and, and we see all the evil and we see all the, the sin and all the injustice and all the wrongs that are going on in our world and, and, and we think, well, you know, one day God's going to judge the world and one day he will judge the world. But we forget that he'll begin with the church in the world before he goes to the world around the church. The church goes first. And what happens in Acts, the very first time you see the discipline of the Lord, it's not in the life of non-believers. It's in the life of the church, the life of believers. Why? Because it's the church that God longs to redeem the world through. It's of little surprise then that Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, that judgment begins with the family of God. And Peter had a front row seat to that reality. By the way, aren't you, aren't you thankful that, that God didn't make what happened to Ananias and Sapphira a pattern? You know, for all the times we look back on our lives and we wish that God had worked more powerfully in a certain situation or, 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 or showed up differently in a certain situation, we also have plenty of times that we ought to thank God that he didn't, he didn't work in those powerful ways out of his mercy and his grace for us. Thank God he didn't establish a pattern here, but just because he didn't establish a pattern doesn't mean that there's not a point that he wants to make. Speaking of the point, here's the third takeaway when it comes to going viral. Going viral happens through lives of authenticity. Going viral happens through lives of authenticity. This really is the issue in many ways with Ananias and Sapphira. At first glance, it's easy to think that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they didn't give 100% of the money that they got from their real estate deal and lay it at the apostles' feet. But that wasn't the sin. The sin was that they were acting as though they were. There's nothing mentioned here about a rule being that you had to, when you sold a piece of property or land or whatever it may be, that you had to bring 100% of the profits and lay it at the apostles' feet. That's just what some were doing. 
That's what Barnabas does. But you know what? Giving can be contagious. And Ananias and Sapphira were part of a movement that at this point had grown into the thousands. And, and this is a big movement. And there's, there's, there's passion, there's energy, there's excitement surrounding this movement. And I'm sure Ananias and, and Sapphira, they wanted to be a part of this. I mean, they were already believers, but they wanted to be even a part of this movement of, of sharing and sacrificing and to contribute to it. And, and maybe they'd pledge themselves publicly to do the same thing that others were doing, to give 100% of the profits back, the proceeds back. I don't know if, if that's what they did. What I do know is that Luke tells us that Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the money. That word for kept back also means to rob or to pilfer. The sin was not that they kept back part of the proceeds. The sin was them pretending that they hadn't. Them pretending that they'd given it all. Because here's the deal. They wanted the appearance of sacrifice without the sacrifice. And what Ananias and Sapphira did is really closer to the word that we so often associate in other circles, and that's hypocrite. What they did was really closer to the definition of that word hypocrite that, that, that Jesus describes when he talks about that. You know, today when we use the word hypocrite, a lot of times we'll use it to basically talk about somebody who doesn't live up to what they profess to, to believe. But that's, that's not really a hypocrite. The, the word hypocrite hasn't actually always had a, a, a bad meaning to it or a negative meaning to it. The word hypocrite in the Greek actually means an actor. And so when you called someone a hypocrite, it wasn't actually always necessarily an, a, an insult. It simply meant, uh, meant an actor in a play or, or a drama. And the first actors, those Greek actors, wore masks. They put on a false face. And it was Jesus who came along and, and used the term hypocrite in a negative connotation when he warned his followers against doing things just for the purpose of being seen by others putting on this, this false face, this false mask to portray yourself one way when that's not really who you are. That's hypocrisy. And Ananias and Sapphira are a stark reminder that God sees when I'm working hard to appear to be something for others that I'm not. And God has no interest in his mission or his church being a stage for our self-promotion. For us to appear better than we are. The focal point of our lives is Jesus' reputation, not ours. And yet one of the primary works of Satan is to nurture an unhealthy preoccupation with, with myself and my reputation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul is speaking to Timothy about the reason why new believers shouldn't become elders, shouldn't be, be the, the, the primary leaders in the church. And he says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Pride is really the root sin of the devil. It's, it's, it's his primary nature. Pride is his primary nature. And on top of that, Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse 44, that when he lies, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. And so Satan's primary um, nature is pride, and his primary language is lying. Here's the deal. Pride and lying go together. Where there is pride, 
there will be lying. And where you have pride and lying, you will have hypocrisy. And where there is hypocrisy, believers become an obstacle instead of an opportunity for others to draw near to Christ. Hypocrisy is, is what slows the viral nature of the message of Jesus Christ. Authenticity is what accelerates it. And there are times when the Lord will move to purge hypocrisy from our lives. Thankfully, he doesn't always do it like he did with Ananias and Sapphira, or there wouldn't be any of us left if we're just being honest. But again, just because it's not a pattern doesn't mean there's not a point. Because the reality is that all of us from time to time are tempted at points and seasons in our lives to project an image of something we are or something we do that just isn't true. We're all inclined to put on a mask, to put on a false face in some areas of our lives. And so I want to close today by just giving you three suggestions, really three encouragements when it comes to cooperating with the Lord's purging of, purging of hypocrisy in our lives. Here's the first encouragement. I want to encourage you to pray for the audience of Jesus to be your first priority. Pray for his affection and his approval to be the motivating factor in your life. When I'm preoccupied with the audience and the affection and the approval of Jesus, I'm less inclined to try and portray an image of something that I'm not in order to gain the approval and the affection and the attention of others and vice versa. When I'm less, in, less concerned with, with God's approval and, and his affection, then I'm more inclined to, to try to portray something that I'm not to, to try to gain the approval of others. And so just ask for the Lord for a stronger desire for his affection, for his approval, for his audience to be first priority in your life. Here's a second thing. I want to encourage you to pray for those times when you don't receive credit, to embrace it as an opportunity to sharpen your focus on Jesus. For those times when you don't receive credit for doing something, I want to encourage you to pray that you will embrace it as an opportunity to sharpen your focus on Jesus. Now, I know it's not any fun to not receive recognition or appreciation for something that you do. We don't do it for that reason, although if we're honest, sometimes that reason does creep in there. But even if we don't do it for that reason, it's still nice to be appreciated. It's nice to be recognized for those things that we do. But also understand that secrecy and anonymity can be an incredible gift for you to get rerooted in your focus upon the audience and the affection and the approval of Jesus instead of the audience and the affection and the approval of others. And so embrace it as an opportunity to do just that. And then third, I want to encourage you to remember the mission is about Jesus' reputation, not yours. We're called to be witnesses of him and his kingdom not me and my kingdom. And every day of my life, I've got to make a decision. Will I choose to live for the sake of Jesus' reputation? Or will I choose to live for the sake of mine? Either way, one way or the other, something's got to give. Either my reputation is going to be sacrificed for him, or I'll sacrifice his for mine.
The choice is up to you. Just know that either way, there will be powerful consequences. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. Father, sometimes we, we struggle. Let's just be honest. Father, sometimes, a lot of times we struggle. We struggle with this idea of, of portraying an image of, of something. Sometimes it's not malicious. Maybe it's something that we want to be, but we portray these images of, of something that we're not to try to gain the approval of others. When, Father, who we are is really redeemed by you. We're not perfect. We don't have any righteousness of our own, but we have made, been made perfect through the blood of your Son. Help us not to portray some image of ourselves of who we should be or who we think we ought to be before the, the eyes of others, but Father, help us to, to simply be images of your Son. The way we live, the way we talk, the way we treat other people. Help us to live for your audience above all else. Thank you for the gift of Jesus that makes it possible. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, we've talked a lot about power today. And it reminds me of something that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I talked about just a few moments ago, that word powers, dunamis, dynamite. It's the same word that Paul uses here, the power of God, the dynamite of God. Paul basically divides the world into two groups. He oversimplifies it, but that's the reality when you get down to it. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the first group, those who are perishing... To them, the cross of Christ is foolishness. The, the original Greek word there uh, for foolishness is, is the word moria, which is the same root word where we get the English word moron. In other words, Paul is in essence saying that the unsaved world, those who believe and preach, or excuse me, to the unsaved world, those who believe and preach the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified, they look like morons. In Paul's day, the cross remained in widespread use by the Romans as a means of public execution. It was a symbol of, of shameful crimes and, and powerlessness before the irresistible Roman Empire. And so the cross of Jesus, it wasn't foolishness because the Romans and the Greeks didn't believe in deity. They didn't believe in a god. They, they believed in plenty of different gods. In fact, they, they sorted them all out by the power that they wielded over nature and humanity. But rather, the cross of Christ was foolishness to the pagan culture because Jesus Christ was rejected by his own people and crucified like any other common criminal by the Roman machine. From the Roman and Greek perspective, that was no kind of God to worship. But for those who are being saved because of their belief in Jesus Christ and their faith in him, we understand the cross to be God's most powerful act. God's son didn't lose a fight with the Jewish leaders or the Roman government. He wasn't overpowered or outmatched, but Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for the, sin, pay for the penalty of the sins of the world. Jesus, in spite of limitless 
power, and authority, gave up his life to cover the sins of those who were perishing. Those who trust in Christ understand that without that powerful act, we would be lost and without hope. But as we sometimes sing, there's power in the blood. There is power in the blood of Jesus that flowed from the cross of Calvary. And because there's power in the blood, we are not lost, but we are found. And because there's power in the blood, we are not without hope, but we have the greatest hope of all, both in this life and for all eternity. Let's give thanks for the bread. Father, we thank you for the bread that we are about to share in that represents your son's body that was given for us. What a powerful example of sacrifice that you gave for us through him. Father, it's easy for some to look at the cross and to think that Jesus was a victim, but Father, he wasn't. He laid down his power for sinners like me. And he gave up his authority so that I could be in a relationship with you. And we give thanks for his body that was given for us, that he laid down of his own accord because he loved us that much and because you loved us that much and still do. Father, thank you for this bread that represents all of that. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Let's give thanks for the juice. Father, we also thank you not only for his body, but for his blood that was shed for us. There truly is power in the blood, power to redeem, power to take what was lost and to make it found, to take what was broken and make it whole, to make, take what was dead and to give it new life. Thank you for the blood that does all of those things. And as we share in this cup, May we be reminded of just how much you paid and the sacrifice that was given, the blood that was shed so that we could have our sins washed away. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, we just thank you for another day that we can worship you. Father, we are, are so mindful of all the things that are going on and we can't wait for the day that we will be able to, to meet together worship together, but we also thank you for just this reminder that we are still together. We are still one in spirit through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for this time that even though we may be in separate places, that, that Father, uh, we are one in you. We are joined together through the blood of your son, Jesus, and through our faith in him. Thank you for that gift of still knowing that. And Father, help us to reach out because we are, we are mindful that this this life that we are to live is not about this building or these walls, but it is so much more than that. So much beyond that that you've called us to live. Father, ultimately to take the message of your son viral, and that doesn't happen in a church. That happens outside the church. May we be that kind of people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us. Have a blessed day.